welcome to Anna Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Anna, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Christine Fries, founder of Rohingya Voice. Christine's story is like something from the script of a Hollywood movie. Her daughter's holiday romance led her to discover Myanmar, a country she quickly grew to love. Through her newfound love of Myanmar, Christine learned of the horrific plight of the Rohingya. Like so many people, Christine was appalled by the treatment the Rohingya endured. She saw beyond the headlines of an atrocity somewhere far removed from her everyday life. And instead, she saw the Rohingya for what they are, people just like us. Individuals with enormous talent, hopes and dreams. People who are being stripped of their very identity and humanity. Determined to learn as much as she could, Christine read voraciously and started reaching out to the Rohingya community. A series of events led Christine to travel from Cologne, Germany to Geneva in Switzerland, where two survivors of the Rohingya genocide had been flown in to perform for the UN, only to be flown back to the refugee camp in Bangladesh two days later. But Christine had other plans. Let's start the conversation. Hi, Christine. Can you hear us? Can you hear me now? Oh, yeah. yeah yes. Oh, my God. This is my first Zoom meeting. I'm doing. <laughs> We're on it. <laughs> Great. No, I had just Rafiq, you know, my Rohingya son who's living with me now. He just told me what I have to do when this goes on. And I was really listening carefully, but then I didn't see the the red line through the audio and the red line through the um, video. But now I got it. Um, yeah lovely to meet you Uh, it's Christine is it Christine it's Christine and yeah I'm very very honored that you invited me to this incredible podcast you started there I, I think this is totally awesome what you're doing really I'm really impressed and of course the speakers you already had very impressive also I I learned a lot of course I knew a lot also but it's just I take this like a how do you call this when you wash yourself? Like swamp who gets water, you know? <laughs> it's really great. It's really, really great what you're doing. That's, that's great to hear. And I think for us, we're learning a lot as well. But I mean, we obviously read your about on your website and your story is fascinating. So we're definitely excited to hear about that. It sounds like something from a movie, the whole yes. thing, yes. Which, is, which is great. <laughs> so, so tell us how it all began for you. Yeah, to start, I'm here a total newcomer in all this raising awareness about Myanmar and all this raising awareness about the Rohingya. I'm really a newcomer compared to all the other speakers you already had. I mean, I'm into this only since five years. It started with a vacation to Thailand with my daughter then. And in this beautiful vacation, we met a Burmese young man who totally fell in love with my daughter. And my daughter totally fell in love with this young man. And um, watching this sweet love story with them both, I found out that the Thais were incredibly racist with the Burmese workers there. I mean, when you uh, come from a low status, like so many Burmese in Thailand who try to, to get a better life, you really get treated so bad, you know, a totally exploitation of the Burmese there. And... Of course, first, I had this love also for this young man. 
But then my interest rose for the country. And why are all these young people coming from Myanmar to Thailand? And what is the situation? So we left this island after two weeks, three weeks. And then this love story went on for a year. My daughter was talking with this guy on the phone for a year. And she said in 2017, she said, Mom, we must go back. I must go back. This is not finished. I must go back. In this year, during this year, I already read everything I could about Myanmar, everything. I mean, the history, the politics, the traditions, uh, Buddhism. I read every article. I read every book. I mean, I, I don't know why, but this was so fascinating to me. And already before being there, I was totally infected by this virus, by the Burmese virus, by this Burmese spirit. It just got to me. I, I can't explain to you why. It has a lot to do, of course, with, with Ted. But yeah, it's beyond this fascination or this, this love for this young man. So we went back in 2017 and it was, of course, as beautiful as before. He waited for her, you know. And then I thought, I want to get this guy to Germany. I want to help him. And this must be possible. So we went back to Cologne and then we only stayed for four weeks here. And then we went back and met him in Bangkok. And I was totally naive. I thought I... I, I fill out these visa forms and go to the embassy, ask for a visa, and then we get him. Totally naive I was at that time. Of course, this was a total no-go. Didn't work, you know, not, not accepted because they, they always explain this, the, the embassy, that it is not sure that this person will definitely go back then to Thailand or Burma, you know, that they will try to stay illegally in Germany. So I said to my daughter, I said... We will not give up on this. So I got me a lawyer. I got every help I could. I really did everything right. I, I assured the financial background support, you know, that we can have him as a guest. So we went back to Bangkok. This is all, was all such an adventure. All together with him, he had already been in a German course in the Goethe Institute. He had moved to Yangon, you know, to learn German, to make this more real. And the second time also didn't work. So... My daughter, she, she was finished. She said, Mom, I can't go on with this. I mean, we will never be together. And he's there and I'm, I'm here. So then I said to Ted, you know what? You go back to Myanmar because what's happening to you in Thailand is so bad. And we will visit you as much as we can. And we will not give up on this. And I will not give up on this. I mean, he's like my son until today. We talk every day. We are so, so close. He's now with his parents in, in a very small village in the jungle in the south of Myanmar, one hour from Kathao with the car. He's somehow surviving. I have the feeling the situation right now doesn't affect really the people who are really living remote. Of course, they have their shortages and they know what's going on. But what is happening in the big cities, this horror, they, they are out of this. They are somehow safe. Of course, COVID is there also. And the fear, people are dying there also, but it's not like in Yangon or Mandalay. But in all this now, until today, and over my love to this country, of course, I found out about the persecution of all ethnicities in, in Myanmar. I mean, you can't get around this. And when you inform yourself about the country, and of course, then about the persecution and the killing and the, the mass killing and the genocide on the Rohingya, I heard about this the first time in in 2016, when we came back from Thailand, and I thought, what, what is happening there? What? In a Rakhine state, Muslim terrorists didn't make sense to me. Not at all. And then, of course, these two Reuters journalists, uh, Wallon and Chaw, so 
got arrested. And that was the first time that I doubted this government, this government that was never a democracy to me. There was not even ever a transition to democracy. The Burmese have not the slightest idea about a democracy. They just worship this woman and, and trusting her that she's doing everything right. And that's about it. And when these two guys were arrested, who showed to the world what happened in Rakhine, this execution of these 10 Rohingya, and they got arrested, whereas the Burmese government should have supported them saying this, I thought, democracy and, and these guys, journalists, are going to prison. And that was the first time I thought, no, where's Aung San Suu Kyi? Where's this woman? Where are the people who, who tried to get them out? And over this And then reading and reading and reading and finding out about all these atrocities. And no one was saying anything in this country. No one. I mean, I followed the Irrawaddy newspaper, the talk shows there with really great people, the people I respected with lawyers and people from important backgrounds being interviewed. And they criticized a lot of things that were not going right inside of Myanmar. The situation of the workers, the garment business, that there are no working rights. That, yeah, the, the restrictions on every corner, but they never, ever spoke about the Rohingya. Never. And when they did, when they spoke about the problems that were in Rakhine, then they spoke about Bengalis. And the literature, Tan Mint U in his big book, The Hidden History of Burma, and also Charles Amo, the, the chief director of the Irrawaddy in his book, The Cell Exile and the New Burma, all these books are read. Rohingya, they don't appear. And I mean, even the establishment, even the intellectuals, the, the politicians, the really the people who have something to say, who could have steered up something, who could have raised an awareness. No one ever said this word, Rohingya. And that made me very distant again to the country I love. And I thought by myself, I cannot go there anymore. I mean, as long as they, in the end, accept this genocide, and this is what your first or second speaker said, Nay Pang, this collective, this national collective guilt they're having, I can't go back there. And then Because I got so much into this Rohingya thing and knowing so much, I wanted to get to know them. I, I thought these people all have faces. It's not just a group somewhere in Bangladesh or wherever in concentration camps. These people, they all have a history. They're all individuals. I would like to get to know them. So I did something I never did before in my life. I was living here my little sweet German life. I reached out to a Rohingya who had made it to Malaysia, Imran Mohammed. I found him over a BBC article and he was regretting that he went to Malaysia because he was somehow lost there and he had quite a position in the camps doing good work. So he was writing in this BBC article that he managed to get out, but that he was not so sure if it was the right decision. So I found him on Facebook <laughs> and uh, I asked for a friend request. And this Imran immediately answered back. That was, yeah, I think in the middle of 2019, not so long ago. And we started talking and that was for me such a privilege and honor. I mean, that was really a real Rohingya, a real Rohingya. It was a real authentic Rohingya. I mean, I knew already everything, but then this guy was there in front of me speaking English. So he told me so many things about his people, about the persecution, also about the difficulties they're having within. 
and about the camp life and all that. And that for me, that was, um, yeah, he became like a real friend. And I really appreciated that he trusted me so much also. And then I read on Facebook also about a poetry slam uh, happening in the Goethe Institute organized by Burmese monks. And over Skype, they invited Rohingya poets from the camps to read poetry, which of course they do. They do so many things, so there are creativity in these camps. And I read about this and I thought, oh my God, this is so great, especially monks, you know, really giving them the hand for reconciliation. And I followed this and I read the poems and that was so impressive that one of these Rohingya, his name was Asa, who was reading his poem, I also asked for friendship. So you must imagine from one million Rohingya, from one million, I had contact to two. This Imran in Malaysia and this Assad, no one else. These were my two contacts. And after talking to this Assad for six weeks, he told me about photography, what they're doing, about painting, about making music, writing poetry. He opened up to me a cosmos of talent, of Rohingya talent growing in these camps. They make videos, they make films. Of course, unfortunately, mostly the men, you know, the women you don't see so much, which is a problem for me, especially as a woman in Germany. So there has to be also work to be done for them to open up a little for this. But anyway, I was totally thrilled and, and flashed by this, what was going on. And after six weeks talking to Asa, he said to me, don't tell this to anyone, but I'm coming to Geneva. And I, I said, no. <laughs> this is totally impossible. No one gets out of these camps. No one gets flown into Europe as a Rohingya. I said, no. He said, yes. I said, impossible. He said, I'm coming. And then to me, I knew I am only seven hours with a train from Geneva here in Cologne. I said, I'm coming. I mean, I wanted to get to know this guy just for having a dinner and then okay you know but at that point to me it was crystal clear that the UNHCR would help him to stay to ask for asylum they said Asa do you want to stay and he said yeah I want to stay but that's not the plan they want me there and another one also Rafik for for two days they want us to put on traditional clothing and to speak in front of the United Nations to fundraise money again for the public to let in the camps the life goes on. And, and then to fly back. I mean, just like monkeys, you know, putting them there. This is how Rohingya is looking. Uh, oh, my God, beautiful people. They also can speak English uh, and then flying them back into this misery. I could not believe. But their plan was to fly them in, show them off and then fly them back to the camp. Yes. Who, who is that? That was the UN. The UNHCR. The UNHCR picked from all this creative youth, picked Rafik and Assad to do this. And an, another young woman, Shahida Wynn, also she's writing poetry and she's also in women empowerment. She was also with them. And um, they even canceled the sightseeing day they promised them in Geneva. On the way, they said, um, when we go back to the airport, we can stop by a chocolate store so you can buy some Swiss chocolate for your family, they told me. And of course, I, I got me an Airbnb apartment because the hotels are so expensive in, in Geneva, which in the end was great. My plan was not to rescue them. I thought this could be a possibility. But when I went to Geneva... For me, it was still clear that there would be someone 
who would help them. Even Filippo Brandi, they talked to there. Uh, in, a, in a private meeting, both Rafik and Asen said, we want to stay. What can we do? And he said, he left the room. He left the room. We can't do anything because they promised the Bangladesh authorities to bring them back just like that. So I met them in the hotel in the evening. The next day they had this great speech and it was not allowed for me to invite them for dinner. They were always accompanied. And, um, and I was totally, you know, I thought they are free. They are not like prisoners. So I said to this guy from England or whoever it was who was accompanying them, I said, uh, hey, look, I'm here. I know them both from Facebook. Is this a miracle here happening? It's really a miracle. I want to invite this two nice young man for dinner here in Geneva, and then I bring them back to the hotel. And he said, no, we have meetings now. Uh, we have here appointments. It's impossible. Total lie was not true. He was already scared. When I was gone, he asked, is this a lawyer? Is this a lawyer from which organization is she? And they were really terrified already when I showed up. And they really controlled them both. So then the next day, they went to this great performance there. Unbelievable anyway, because I'm sure, you know, you put two Rohingya on the stage, you don't get one dollar more for whatever helping program, you know. To me, a total charade, the whole thing. But anyway, it's not important. Then it was over, this thing, and I talked to Asa and I said, so what's the plan now? Is anyone helping them? And he said to me, no, we're going back tomorrow early in the morning to the airport and we fly back to Bangladesh. And I said, no, I'm coming. I'm coming tonight. You can tell them you smoke a cigarette outside and then I'm in the taxi and you come with me. And th this was just for me the chance in a lifetime because all the time I was sitting here crying, really crying in the street, wherever I was, I was just crying because when you imagine what has happened to the Rohingya, you know, you can't, I mean, if you have some kind of empathy or compassion, which uh, apparently this woman in Myanmar doesn't have, the tears just come out, you know. So for me, not knowing what to do with this here in Germany, this was my chance. I don't know which power gave me this, but I got the chance to get two Rohingya out. And they, they did it. They came in the middle of the night. They, they just jumped into my taxi. <laughs> and then we went into this Airbnb. I booked them two online tickets. And that was one week before lockdown here in Germany and Switzerland. So one week later, the whole thing would not have worked. It, it was impossible to travel, to go to the train, to, you know, 10,000 controls. So that was not the case. I got them the tickets. We have here no border control. Got them to my apartment, which was great because they immediately took over my kitchen. You know, from this moment on, only Rohingya food, only Rohingya curries, chilies everywhere, spiciness everywhere. Yeah. And in this week, I got me a very, very good uh, lawyer here for immigration and for refugee. Um, said they have to go through the whole asylum process. You can't go around this. They have to do this. So we did this and the next time months was hard for them because they had to stay under lockdown in horrible, horrible refugee places here in Una, it's called. Really like a prison, like a camp, really horrible. They must have felt really alone, really alone and nothing was moving because of lockdown. Nothing was going, no interview, 
I went there twice a week with food because that was so disgusting what they got there. So I brought them curries and rice because an Asian person can't live without a Burmese, can't live without and a Rohingya either without rice, you know. So I brought them always enough rice and curries and took them out of this place to make some walks. Yeah, and then they got the interview and then immediately it had to be proven that they're authentic Rohingya because many refugees already from Bangladesh, they fake to be Rohingya to get an easy entry here. So they could make it very clear that they were Rohingya. I mean, I was there with these interviews. What they described, uh, I mean, now I knew them and I already had them in my heart. And what they described, oh my God, I can, I can start cry right away again. What they went through, these young men, the one is 25, 26 now, and the other is 21, or he is living with me and my family now, is so unbelievable. So, of course, then they got really the red carpet here in Germany. They have full refugee status. They have full access to whatever we can offer refugees. And, yeah, and now they start their lives in a place an hour away from us. He's very happy there. He has his own apartment. And, and Rafik is uh, staying with us, which was also not easy to accomplish, but I did, I managed. And he's starting now an apprenticeship in our business, in our event location, to be an event salesman he's learning now. Yeah, and, and that's it. And going from this private story of mine, which of course dominates my life now and made me a little famous also, which I was not expecting like this, because <laughs> I got so many friends now and the Rohingya look up to me and they, it's a wave of love coming over me. But apart from this, of course, still, you know, reading everything I can, getting informed about everything there is. And what's happening right now in Myanmar, yes, is a very, very high price for looking away for so long and for not, for not feeling any empathy and for relying on a woman who was not doing her job and at no point, uh, not doing good for Myanmar, even if you leave the complicity with the Tatmada out in the genocide. I mean, she really, in these six years she had there, she did nothing good for her country. She stayed silent for whatever. I mean, I, I can now summarize what she missed out there. I mean, just getting out political prisoners, for doing amnesty for political prisoners. More students got imprisoned under her and more restrictions were there. And you never heard this woman saying one word. So the problem for me in all this, when I look into the future and, you know, as a German, we have been through this because... We are the masters of genocide in this world. And the Germans had to learn their lesson really in a very, very hard way. I mean, the Americans, they decided what would happen with us after 45. And the military, we were totally disarmed. I mean, there was no military allowed in Germany. And I think this should be also happen in Myanmar. But there are no Americans who control this. In my view... If this is over one day, I hope, one day soon in the future, I don't know what how Myanmar will be, but this military has to be gone in total. And all these uh, members of the military, they have to do civil jobs, normal jobs like everyone, a bus driver or work in a tea shop or whatever, but they can't be any military anymore. And even if they accomplish all this and re-educating, of course, my biggest concern are the Rohingya. And the biggest problem when all this is over is not Myanmar. The biggest problem stays Rakhine because Rakhine 
always wanted to have things different. And Rakhine is the home of the Rohingya. And the Rakhine are the worst racist from the whole country. They are the worst Muslim haters and they are the worst racist. And even if all people in Myanmar welcome the Rohingya back, the Rakhine won't. And this will be the challenge, I mean, from all the challenges there will be to deal with, because they will definitely say, yeah, it was not so great what happened to them. We agree there was a genocide. Yeah, not so great, but they don't belong here. They are from Bangladesh illegally. And this is what many Burmese also say still. They say, yes, that was wrong what we did. And yes, oh my God, genocide, everything. But they don't belong here. They were never a part of Myanmar. And I experienced the last wave of hate towards me when I was in one of these anti-coup demonstrations, one in Bonn and one in Cologne in my city. I was really astonished that there are so many Burmese living here, really a lot and a lot of engagement, really great and heart touching. But, you know, they were still holding up these NLD banners and the photos of this woman. I mean, I refuse to say her name too often because she doesn't say Rohingya, so I only call her mother Sue. I can't say her name. They, they were still living in the fantasy world that this woman will come back and that the NLD will come back. And they, I think, I don't know what they're reading or how they're informing themselves, but that this woman is right now in the right place, of course, imprisoned by the wrong people. But she belongs to prison. She's a criminal. She stood by. She applauded when the Tatmada were cleaning up. She's a total Muslim hater. And I got the chance to speak on the microphone during one of these demonstrations. Of course, I didn't say it this harsh because I knew. And I, I said, I think we should really allow the younger people now to have a chance to build up this country. And that this woman probably is not the future anymore, or that her time is definitely over. And also from the NLD, we have the NUG, the, the National Unity Government now. And what happened after this? Oh my God, they hated me. These people, these Burmese, they were so aggressive shouting at me in this demonstration and really hostile, hostile and furious at me. And this is something that is still, of course, in Myanmar, you can't say anything against this woman. You can't. That's it. And then you're a hater. Then you're a Myanmar hater. So as long as Myanmar even, I mean, I hope they survive this because I love this country and the people there, that this will go on. They will have the biggest problem after with this deep-rooted racism. And if there is not any program of smart people who, who have a long-term plan, I mean, I'm talking about 20 years because as a German, I know, you know, the Nazis were still here for a long time. And they had all important positions still until the mid-60s, until the 70s. And if you don't really integrate this in the schools, in the education, in the newspapers, in the literature, everywhere, and make people aware of what they have done and what they have closed their eyes to for 40 years or 50 years, I don't know how the Rohingya will ever, or any ethnicity, will ever have a chance if this deep-rooted racism is part of the society there. That's my biggest concern when all this is over, which I hope is soon. I mean, the last speaker you had there, this great Meredith Bond, I can recommend this to anyone to listen to this podcast. I mean, what this woman is describing, what's happening now in Myanmar, that the people are just literally dying, either being killed or 
from COVID. When all this is over, Myanmar has work to do, really a lot of work to do. And yeah, I have no answers. I'm just watching. I, I, I still hope that this will somehow work out. Like one of the things, Christine, just because I, I do want to stop on the Aung San Suu Kyi for a moment, because yeah. I mean, obviously, I kind of understand it from many sides, because I, I do understand that for so many people, she means so much and has done for a long time. And I've been in similar protests or even online where people have spoken like you. And I can see like people visibly hurt by those words, you know, hearing them. And the thing is, you are informed. And you are educated and you have taken the time to do that. Not everyone has. They don't have that knowledge yet. And I think for some people, and some people we've spoken to, they've even said, where was there the time? We're just trying to live. We're just trying to survive every day out here. Where is the time for us to even educate ourselves on any of this? You know, we're just, every day is just survival in this country for many, many people. So I think education is a big thing because people are not educated. Obviously, we know the media there is very much controlled and has been for a very long time. So there is a lot of propaganda. People are fed this hate. There is a need to like, I guess, undo a lot of that and then start again certainly but I think Aung San Suu Kyi because what she represented for so long to so many people it's it's very hard to undo that for some people you know and yeah uh, but what did she really do I mean this is so interesting to me I mean she's very charismatic she is the daughter of Aung San of this national hero but literally yes she was in house arrest and this was a big sacrifice she did there for so many years But literally, benefit for Myanmar, what did she really do? What? Of course, she led the NLD. She was the, you know, the, the NLD started with her and the 88 uprising. And yes, but that, in my view, that was more or less it. I mean, what else did she really push? Which law did she establish? Which approach did she really do for the benefit of this country, for the health care? For women, for, sorry, maybe I'm not informed enough about her. I completely understand what you're saying and, and where you're coming from. But for me, again, it does come back to that education thing and the reality of, of the country. There is not a system of education to educate different ethnicities about each other. I mean, we're coming from privileged backgrounds where we've been taught to question, we've been taught to analyse, we've had the internet our whole lives, well, you know, most of our lives, <laughs> um, and we've been able to access this information. So the process in terms of Aung San Suu Kyi and educating the Myanmar people about her, she will be this symbol, especially while she's in prison. You may argue that her rightful place should be in prison for genocide, but that's not why she's in prison. That's and true. <laughs> Until that's an education process, until that's a discussion, until that is discussed in a way that doesn't seem to be the West demonizing her. It needs to be, you know, it needs to be a public discussion and forum that is accessible by the people. I'm, I'm British. I'm from a country that has ashamed itself with the latest World Cup in terms of its own people. And we have access to education. Everyone does. And we have generations of multiculturalism. And it's still a problem here. So if you compare Myanmar and its complexities, It's not had the developed education system. It's very state and ethnicity, different languages, and it's never had to integrate. Contrary to that, a lot of states do want independence. So I think it goes far beyond Aung San Suu Kyi in terms of 
unraveling this complexity like just as you said like the issues after this coup hopefully that will end soon are just going to be it's a it's a long journey ahead the thing is that the burmese or people in myanmar have to acknowledge the fact that rohingya belong there it's their home and that there are no illegal immigrants and it's proven and this is something even if you if you mention um, reliable sources in conversations with burmese that really is proof from scientists and historians that uh, rohingya belong to rakhine since hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years then they reply you read the wrong books this is the wrong information then you read propaganda that's you know like talking to a wall and if you criticize anything in the handling with the muslims especially the rohingya there comes no you know what we have the privilege to learn like a controversial dialogue like a controversial conversation where you don't want to attack someone personally where you just have different opinions and then you make an exchange in the moment you say how you dealt with this in the past or that you have simply the wrong information they don't accept it i'm really 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 happy to see what's happening now with the young people with the generation z and all these incredible heroes in the street and all this this shift happening also in the society you know now you can see people who really want something different and who are open to this but i would say like people in my age in myanmar or you know i'm now 57 I I think people from 40 plus if they are still very yeah not really willing to accept that under the governance of this woman that there were big mistakes made you know they simply are not open to this discussion and so I really hope also that the young people there get a chance I really hope that I think even what you're saying there with some of that age group and I think you're right I think they grew up under a brutal military dictatorship they will have seen a change under Aung San Suu Kyi in terms of their personal freedom in terms of jobs being able to infrastructure even like small changes so there was as i call it surface change you know we didn't dig too deep life seemed better but when you point out things there and i hear what you're saying i'm like yeah you're right you know there there wasn't progress in those ways and I can't point to lots of things that they did but there was a sense of the country was moving forward there was development there was opportunity that there hadn't been and I guess there just wasn't brutality as people had experienced it prior to her you know so I can see why some people are are holding on she won the Nobel prize she stood up to the military she was a symbol and I think the western media ran away with that and made it so big and it's very hard for somebody to have worshiped somebody and they be their hero and then to accept that that's not who they are now or they didn't live up to our expectations i can understand it and i think some people do say like the love is unconditional you know yes that's true and uh, one thing i found out now which really makes me very very happy and also excited i mean through the coup now i can see now all the these young burmese that that are doing such incredible things i mean all the artist scenery the music the underground they have punks they have so much creativity like us here they are so expressive and so fresh and so inspiring and all this i can see also in the rohingya youth and they are there imprisoned in this cramped camp and 
many of them are so modern, so progressive. I have hope in the future when I see these young people. And I'm sure that there's uh, these great forces, these great young forces in Myanmar, that they really could connect greatly with the new forces in the Rohingya society. And that for them, the religion is not important at all. That they embrace themselves for creating something new, for being together, for enjoying life, or for finding their field of where they want to work or where, where they want to express themselves. And that's from all the horror we see. I see this the whole time. I see the beauty coming out of the Rohingya community uh, with photographers. And this is why I did this webpage photographers and, and poets and people also who fall out of the mainstream and get a platform. And to me, this is inspiring. And I was totally depressed after this long speech from Meredith Bond because I thought, oh my God, where will this end? But then parallel, I have all this flowers blooming coming from every corner from people who have a hope in the future and who want to change something. So I think we all should focus on that and hope for this to happen, really, that this will come. And yeah, I'm, I'm proud to be part of this, to watch this. <laughs> this is not a, a cheery follow-on, but I've seen a lot of stuff about flooding. And obviously, you've got links in the Rohingya camps. Um, have you heard from anyone in, in the situation there currently? I've seen some terrible images. I mean, uh, this is a whole subject for itself. The living conditions in these camps, um, of course, got worse and worse. They were always bad, always, of course. But with COVID-19, the NGOs are not as active as they want to be, partly because they don't have the money resources anymore and partly because they simply can't go inside like they did before for protection. This is one thing that's really, really bad now for the, all the camps. Um, the, the whole um, keeping this up with food and all is, is going really down. And yeah, with this flooding, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, the people for days and days had the water until the neck. And good friends of mine, they talk to me in the middle of the night and they make videos with babies, you know, with little children where everything is flooded. I mean, one meter fifty high. We had this now in, in, in Germany also. Everything destroyed, everything gone. Then they have these fires, you know. To me, sitting here and witnessing this, of course, firsthand and so close to them, I can't tell you how they survive, how they go on, how the next days are looking. I mean, we're talking about just basic things, going to the toilet, getting somewhere food, you know, getting uh, food for your little child, being in a dry place. Just being for one minute dry in the day. And then they have this terrorist problem inside. There's never peace for Rohingya. There have been never peace. And until today, this community has never experienced any real peace. And this is heartbreaking for me. It's following me day and night since I'm into this. I wake up with this and I go to bed with this. And the only thing I can do it's raising awareness, being there for them, sharing what they're doing, listening to them, encouraging them, being on their side. And also with my Burmese friends, keeping the dialogue and yeah, being there for them. That's all I can do. Making fun also, laughing also. That's, that's uh, what I can do. I was thinking about going there, but 
uh, with COVID, and I, I'm still thinking how I how I can do this. Of course, I wanted to go back to Myanmar, which I don't know when the same like for you. When will this ever be possible again in the next year, two, or whatever? You know, we don't know. For you, must be even harder because you have friends there, and of course, you know many people. For me, I just want to see Ted again. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know where this will end, and so uh, yeah, can only hope and pray. And Christine, in terms of the the NUG, what's your thoughts on the NUG? I mean, a lot of people are hailing them as the answer. A lot of people are worried there's still a lot of hardcore NLD at the top of NUG. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think they're the answer for Myanmar's future, or do you think there's still a way to go? Yes, of course, there's a lot of criticism, and I understand the criticism because, of course, in the Rohingya, very skeptical about this also. Because, yeah, it is not clear. Now they claim things and they say things they want to do. But you never know if they really get to power the NUG. Like with Joe Biden now, he promised everything about changing things concerning climate change, doing major steps. Nothing is happening with Joe Biden. He's now in an office. So everyone is, of course, a little skeptical from all the what the NUG is uh, promising when it comes to the Muslim integration. That will be interesting what will happen. I mean, the thing is, we all have to compromise. And that's the only option we have. So instead of criticizing this now and going against it, I mean, we all have to fight the Takmadar first. And then I say, let's take the NUG and start the conversation, how this can be done. And this is the only chance we have with this government. There is no other. So we can never be 100% perfect and happy with one party. But of course, I also wish for an opposition. I also wish for a healthy controversy there and, and that it's not going in the old, how do you say, um, like, you know, NLD members from hardliners are in the new built government and all this. I hope not. And I hope that they will also invite young people there in this party. I hope because they are really the hope for the country, the young people. And that will be still is open. But I say to all the Rohingya who are already, oh, we don't, I'm not sure. And they say, forget about it. This is still long time in the future. We are having different problems right now here. And this is overcoming this terror and, and this, this really pervert killing of their own people. Something, by the way, the Germans did not do. I mean, uh, this is, um, from all the perversion that's, as it seems, in all of us, you know, because the Germans did this and without having any problem with that, that they might do something wrong and, and the Burmese military is doing this. The NUG is a good option. And I say to my Rohingya friends to, to support this, to support them. And they do. They do. They are so compatriot. They really feel now with all the people in the streets, they feel guilty that they can't be there. They say, we are here imprisoned. We can't do our share. If we would be in Myanmar, we would march to the streets. We would be with the other people from Myanmar, with the Burmese. We would be shoulder to shoulder fighting against this. And But we are forced to sit here doing nothing. I think one of the things that worries me, and like you, I read extensively on Myanmar, is the history of Myanmar with compromising and no accountability. You know, the military, you cannot compromise with this military. And I hope that people have finally learned that once and for all. And I think the second thing is you can't forgive and forget. People have to be held accountable because Absolutely. 
you can never move on and there has to be accountability. So I think this time they're the two things that need to be like not fall into doing that again to compromise with the military. I mean, you can compromise with other people, but not this military. And I think accountability is so important, so important. Yeah, I mean, in Germany, we had the Nuremberg trials. I mean, that was in the 50s and the Americans simply hanged, but really bad guys. Uh, That's, of course, thank God, thank God we don't have the death sentence here anymore. But of course, something like this should be happening there also. There should be trials for the worst generals. And then there should be trials also for the ones helping them. And yes, long prison sentences or forever, you know, in prison, that must happen. I don't know how many years this will take, but this must happen, most definitely. In terms of the Rohingya then, I mean... I mean, it's so hard to see what their future is going to be. It's hard to see anyone's future in Myanmar. But as long as this continues, the hope of them going home is even less. I mean, they have this big they have this big problem now. You know, they are denied education because Bangladesh doesn't accept them as official refugees, because if they would state this, that they are official refugees, then they would have to integrate them. They would have to send the children to schools. The Rohingya would have to be offered jobs. They would have to be integrated in the society and Bangladesh has so many problems with itself I mean it's one of the poorest countries we have in the world so they definitely don't want to do this of course they also don't want the Rohingya anyway so what is happening now in all this misery there and struggling to survive the children already missed and the young people four years of education. And that means if this goes on, and even if the Rohingya can go back to Myanmar, they don't speak Burmese anymore because they don't learn it. You know, in, in, in Rakhine, they went to Burmese schools and they learned Burmese. And what will happen is there will come, I don't know how many Rohingya will come back not having any education. I mean, young people, I say youth, not on the level like uh, people in Myanmar, young people. And on top, they will not speak Burmese if this goes on, because in the camps they speak Rohingya. And of course, a lot of parents speak Burmese and they try to keep this alive and to speak Burmese and to teach them the Burmese alphabet. But it's different when you're not in the country and when your parents speak a different language. And then what will be the possibilities when they go back? What can they do? How can they be integrated if they don't speak the language? What if the young people? Um, it's like coming to a foreign country, but it's their home. So the Rohingya are very, very, very concerned about this and worried. And that's their main occupancy, the education which is, uh, I mean, already in Myanmar, they were denied higher education with a new citizenship law in 1982 that was established when they were taken away their IDs and people said they're illegal and not belonging there. And then they couldn't go to school anymore. I mean, this, I mean, I think until eighth grade or so, but that was it. Then it was over. You couldn't go anymore. You couldn't study nothing. And This is a big problem of the Rohingya community. How can they persevere when you don't give them education? I mean, we are talking about reading and writing and all this. This is a big, big concern. And there are so many challenges. But of course, once (laughs) once this military is over, I say all is possible with time. 
And what are your thoughts on the Akron army and this movement we hear that's going on up there at the moment where they're enforcing their own governments and laws and rules in that area? Yeah. In the moment, you don't really know what's going on inside this army. I mean, they refused to join the other armies who want to go against now the Burmese army. And they are not, you know, going with this movement. They stay out of this. And to me, that was very astonishing because before the coup, we had a civil war already for two years with the Arakan army and the Tatmadaw. And that was really, really bad. The Tatmadaw were literally destroying Rakhine State from the air with their air fighters. And I thought, I was not sure what I should think, because even if the Arakan army before the coup would have had a chance against the Tatmadaw, what would that have meant for Rakhine, I mean, as a single state? The thing is that the Rakhine and also the Arakan army, they are fighting for autonomy because Rakhine has a lot of uh, natural resources, especially gas. Gas goes, pay pipelines go straight from Rakhine all through Myanmar to China. And China is paying the money for this gas that is coming from Rakhine to Naypyidaw, to the Burmese. And of course, the Rakhine say, uh, sorry, uh, we want to participate here in this business. And also, we don't want that you destroy our villages and our natures and for all for your interest. And they want their own administration. And they want to do like, you know, we have this a little similar here with the Bavarians in Germany. They always make trouble. They want to have everything different all the time. <laughs> But of course, it's different because there are since many years, people get killed in this terrible war. And one thing is for sure. The Rakhine, the Arakan army right now, I think in a way approves what the Burmese army is doing because what they don't want is the Mohingya coming back. And I don't know exactly now what their perception is or what their aim is or what their position in all this is now. I think everyone is wondering. Right now, there is no conflict in Rakhine anymore. There is no fighting, which I mean, it was every day before the coup. Now it's stopped, like as if they make a complicity now together, AA with the Burmese army. I don't, I don't understand this. Like as if they switched sides since this coup. I, I don't know what the plan is of the American army there. No idea. And we know that we announced this Akran dream in 2020. And some people feel that that's their focus. And with the fighting stopped between them now, they're concentrating on establishing a full government on the ground now. But it seems strange, yeah, that they haven't... There's such a big army, too, if they did join forces. you think that that would... When the military is under so much pressure and so weak right now, it seems a strange move that they wouldn't... But they must have a bigger plan. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think the whole world is wondering about the bigger plan because I can't see really what what's what there now, really. The only thing I know... They are totally against Rohingya, and that will stay a big problem. So, yeah, don't know where this will go. So what's next for you then? I know, like, obviously, you're doing a lot. <laughs> Your story is fascinating. I mean, it's really incredible what you're doing. You know, I, I see myself still here as a mother. I mean, I already had some difficulties, jealousy issues with my daughter, you know, uh, because she said, so mom, I lost you to the Rohingya. In a little bit, it's true. Of course, this will stay forever my obligation. This will stay forever my 
my engagement and my wish for life is before I die is that the ring I can go back to Rakhine and yeah I'm, I'm running here my business I will go on with my very normal German life I'm not uh, working in a political party I'm not in an NGO you know I'm not uh, any media person or anything so I'm just continue to do what I'm doing I, I will uh, yeah, I can keep raising awareness, working on my webpage, who's interested to click on there. And the thing is, you know, here in Germany, I was just talking to a gallerist because I wanted to make an exhibition with these incredible Rohingya photographs I have. And in our business, we have all these big rooms, you know, so I have the photos and I have the rooms. And I was talking to a very well-known gallerist here about the idea. And I mean, that was shocking to me because this woman... She knew that Myanmar was somewhere in Asia. That's what she knew. And she never heard about Rohingya. I mean, that was what? Who? And this, of course, will also stay here, my work, to talk about this. I mean, I'm wearing every day these T-shirts. And people ask me when I work with my dog, when I say protect the Rohingya or I'm Rohingya, then they talk to me and say, what? What are you? Uh, so, you know, I'm doing here my little work in my surrounding, in my environment. To raise awareness, to raise awareness about Myanmar, about all this that's going on there, and uh, to talk about this with people, with my colleagues, with my friends, with family, of course, with uh, Rafiq, it's day and night we talk about this the whole time, I and mean, he's here now trying to somehow <laughs> to get along, it's a, it's a culture shock for him, and that's what I will do for the future, and I hope I can see my Burmese son again one day I hope and to see this beautiful country again and that's more or less it I was just going to ask how your daughter's coping with it in the beginning you know she didn't know what to do she I mean she's my daughter she always knew that I was doing a good thing but for her of course is also hard because I'm talking non-stop about this you know Whatever is coming from Myanmar, your podcast. I mean, the last three days, the only thing I'm talking about is your incredible, great uh, podcast. <laughs> and I encourage everyone to listen to this. It's so great. And she already said to me, Mom, can we talk about something else? Uh, maybe for 10 minutes in the day. Uh, <laughs> so I have to tell myself, you can't overdo this. You must give her a break. And also Rafik, you know, he has this horror his past everything he he escaped from Rakhine from Putidong by feet in August 27 it comes back every August this horror he saw all these things and he is part of this community so I also have to pay attention there that I'm not only talking about this that you know there are also other parts in life that are still beautiful that this life is great that there are beautiful things happening also my daughter said, you changed, your, your lightness is gone, your, your easygoing is gone, your, your funniness, the way you made jokes before, you got so serious and so many times so sad. And this will definitely stay a part of me. This experience, what happens in Myanmar and also now with the coup changed me. And I think you know what I'm talking about because whoever is in this changes as a person and you cannot just stop that. That's how it is. Yeah, you get so emotionally invested and so emotionally involved. But your daughter's boyfriend, she must have it from that angle as well. He must be messaging her about, you know, all his concerns about the coup and things. Um, the thing is that 
in all this, their relationship stopped. I mean, they are more like friends now, brother and sister. Uh, the thing is that I keep up the conversation with them. And of course, he and when the coup just happened, they had no internet. He had to drive up a hill with his bike in the jungle, you know, because up this hill there was a little better reception. And he said, because there were more people, he said, I must whisper in English because I don't know who is listening. If someone hears me talking to you in English, I can be arrested. I mean, you have someone on the phone telling you there's someone you love who says, I must whisper in English, we must make this short here now. And you know, this person can be really getting arrested, killed, tortured. This was something before I read in the newspaper of some random people or so on the television, but I didn't know people to whom this could happen. And yeah, so we keep, of course, the conversation every day we talk, but I'm, I'm really thankful because he's not one of these yeah, big cities where it's definitely more dangerous. And he's just keeping it low in the house of his parents. They have lockdown. I mean, he's safe right now. And I'm really, really thankful for that. Really thankful. I think the last thing I just wanted to ask you, Christine, is how do you keep going? You know, because this is not easy work. And so many people since February, you know, even here, you've been doing this obviously longer. But for a lot of people, they're suddenly now becoming overnight activists, you know, doing what they can to raise awareness. But how do you balance that? your life needs to continue as well. You know, like how- Yes, a good question. I can't really, I, it's, it's a good question because I haven't found the answer yet, really. It's really hard to answer this. What I can tell you is, and I think you feel the same, this is dominating our life right now. And of course, I, whatever, in the morning, I want to hear the news. I want to, to see what my friends were posting, what's going on. And I, I want to follow this. I want to be there. And before I was always political, you know, in all my life, I grew up in a political family. And right now, I'm not so interested anymore what's happening in Germany. We have problems here also, or in Europe even. I'm totally consumed by this. And yeah, it's a condition of also suffering, but also something that fulfills me, something that makes me feel good when I can talk to all my Rohingya friends. This is a fulfillment for me. And to also, you know, they are so thankful and grateful that you are interested in them, that you ask questions, that you want to know who they are and how things are going. Also with my Burmese friends I have. And it's just keeping up the friendship and keeping up the contact, even if it's a short, small talk and saying, I love you. I'm here. You can call me whenever, day and night and hang in there. And you are doing great. This already uh, means a lot. And I can imagine if I would be in a situation and I would have someone who would be there, who I could call, who would, uh, you know, try to give me power. I think I would like that also. So we can't do much more. You know, we are not there in the streets and holding up the banners. I'm going here to the demonstrations, of course, now with a different feeling because we have this Burmese nationalists there, which is a little annoying to me. But um, of course, I'm doing that also and fighting with them in my heart and in my mind and spirit for a better future. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm doing. So I want to say one more thing. 
because I think if whenever you have doubts about what you are doing, because I had my doubts also about what I'm doing, don't have them. What you're doing is totally awesome. Totally awesome. I hope that you will make a thousand interviews and you know that this will grow. Your idea of keeping this alive and of yeah, fighting this. We're all fighting this. You with this podcast now, this is going against it. This is a sign of opposition, of really not agreeing with what's going on. And whatever we can do, we do. And this podcast must survive. This is so great. And I'm really, really flattered and honored that you wanted to hear my story. Yeah, we're glad and honored that you came on. I'm first in line for the ticket when your your film gets made, your life film. It is a, like if I had the time, I would write that novel. I think it's an incredible story. I tell you, this was really the biggest adventure of my life. I mean, I'm just a normal German woman, and then I go to Geneva and come back with touring. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I had to do this. I and it was there. It was in front of me. You would have done the same. I could help. Okay, I helped. It was not the question anymore. There was no question. And the great thing is all my family and friends, they say, you did great. And not one person said, oh, my God, how crazy, stupid is she? Or what is she getting into? Not one. Not the father of my daughter, my colleague, my friends. They all said, great job. And and of course, that made me happy also. But what happened? I mean, I had so much work. <laughs> I mean, the good thing was with the lockdown that I couldn't work in our business. I could fully concentrate on, on Rafika Nasa, you know, the first weeks and months, how they got along here, which was hard, was really hard for them. But I was like their mom, you know, I have more children now. And it's great. I found out about myself that a big part of, for me is really caring for others and making them feel good, you know, not only giving them to eat when they're hungry and giving them a cold when they're cold and really to be there for them. So it's a plus in my life. It's a big plus with all the worries and concerns, but it's a plus. And I'm thankful for that. Thank you for listening to Arnar Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at Arnar Podcast, spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.